Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, and Coinos Hermes. I am joined by a guest I'm very excited to talk to today, as someone who is uh, an expat from where I now live. He's lived in different parts of Turtle Island. But uh, Jay Tompt is now in England. And for the past 20 years, Jay has been an active participant in the movement toward regenerative economics. And that's a stream that we've been thinking uh, together about. We thought about the wisdom of Adam Smith, the dangerous wisdom of Adam Smith, the dangerous ignorance of Adam Smith. And we've been talking to people about economic matters as a little thread going through our larger mandala, in a way. Jay is a co-founding member of the Totnes Reconomy Project. Since 2011, the Totnes Reconomy Project has launched innovative economic regeneration and resilience-building projects, such as the Local Entrepreneur Forum and the Reconomy Center. Jay has also co-developed the Local Economic Blueprint course and handbook, advising community groups developing their own local blueprints. He has been leading workshops and giving talks about this work on citizen-led economics in 15 countries so far, and he's a core member of the International Reconomics Community of Practice. I like that idea. For the past six years, Jay has been part-time associate lecturer in economics at Plymouth University, where he's contributed to a number of courses, including Economics in Society, Perspectives in Economics, International Environmental Economics, Introduction to Economics, and the new Challenge Module, which focuses on the Sustainable Development Goals. If you haven't heard about those, they're easy to Google. The SDGs, sometimes derided, sometimes embraced, sometimes a mix. In 2018, Jay co-founded Local Spark, Torbay Community Enterprise CIC, a social enterprise aiming to catalyze citizen-led economic change in a challenging coastal urban context. And in 2020, Jay accepted a post as lecturer at Schumacher College, co-teaching the Regenerative Economics Postgraduate Program. And that's part of why I have him on here, because as you will have heard in other episodes, we're talking a little bit about this book. It won't be the only thing we'll talk about, but this is Small is Beautiful. It's the 50th anniversary. And Schumacher College was named after E.F. Schumacher. And we'll talk to Jay a little bit about his experience teaching there and maybe just hit some highlights of the book. We'll see what we get to. Prior to moving to the UK from San Francisco, just north of where I'm at, I'm in the Maxareja. Some of you know that if you've been listening for a while, the Santa Cruz Mountains, just south of San Francisco. And uh, Jay lived in different parts of California, as I said. He spent eight years as an entrepreneur and consultant in the green business movement. After a 12-year career in Silicon Valley, Jay holds an MBA from the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey and a BA in Philosophy from San Jose State. So, a wisdom brother, fellow lover of Sophia, Jay Tom, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom. Hi, well, um, thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me. I was about to say thank you for that uh, introduction. Well, I will say thank you for the introduction, but um, I know I know where it was coming from, 
And it's a strange experience to to hear somebody read something that you've really only kind of considered as something written. Yeah. To hear someone give voice to it is <laughs> an interesting experience. It is. In general, isn't it interesting how we, uh, in some ways, there are these lovely benefits of, of moving away from orality. But if you cut yourself off completely from it, you you do sometimes forget the power of, of orality. It seems like that's part of what we need to recover. We're, we're talking about a book. I sometimes read books probably far less than many philosophers in the university. But, um, you know, it's something to think about that you know, there's, there are limits to a print-based culture and even more limits to a tweet-based culture or an X-based culture as we're moving to now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, um, very true. And maybe we'll, we'll dive into some of those topics. But, um, you know, one of the things that we, that we really highlight in our course is a conversation as method conversation as sort of the the atoms of how change happens hmm. and so uh, i'm really glad that we're starting out with that sort of consideration yeah and we in fact before we started we we, we were touching on that notion that uh from uh, i i like the, to credit gregory bateson he's not the only one because cognitive science has now talked more about this the the not localizing mind inside the skin capsule but, but Bateson really put it well by saying that mind is an ecology and that evolution is a mental process. And so the way we relate to and cultivate an ecology of mind is going to determine the thoughts that that mind can produce. And so if we think we're running around with thoughts in our head, we've got a mistaken view. And dialogue, when we can open up to a larger ecology of mind, we realize that our intelligence is there in this interwovenness as opposed to in these little... I mean, from Silicon Valley perspective, I mean, I think it's so silly how people are running around thinking that they're disruptors or they're thinking in, outside the box, but they're just rearranging the box or moving the box to a... But redecorating it. There are different things that happen, but it's still really the same box, and we don't understand what it would mean to get out quite. Manipulating the box doesn't have the same ring to it as getting outside the box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's bad PR. Let's not call it that. I just think they don't realize what's happening. I think that people genuinely think that, oh, I'm, I'm a disruptor as opposed to a perpetuator. Well, um, I don't know if I'm prepared to go this deep, but, you know, I think for, I think for the most part, many of us um, are, we hold mistaken views about how we think things, the world is, how we think things are. And, um, uh, you know, I think this is, this is part of why we're in the predicament we're in, in this, in this world. We're still primates. Um, it's really hard to make sense of, of the world as it was, let alone the way it is now, which is so complex. And, and there are so many forces at work and trying to make sense of it all is really difficult. And, and, you know, trying to make sense of, of your own agency and your own uh, impact in the world also very hard um, and this is this just is a question that that uh, I ask myself all the time and many others who are trying to make change in the world is you know what impact do I have am I doing the right thing um, mm. you know and sometimes you think yes having a good impact I can see the influences and other times just like completely irrelevant mm. Yeah. 
It's interesting because in, in the uh, – <clears throat> I, I want to ask you a question about uh, – that's related to some of this, uh, and maybe that's just where to start, really. But I just am struck by how that resonates with a beautiful essay by a Jap- Japanese philosopher. He's kind of the Plato and Aristotle combined of Japanese philosophy named Dogen. And Dogen wrote about how – he it's a beautiful essay called Continuous Practice – and he wrote about the circle of the way. And way, of course, in, in Asian philosophy means the whole shebang, the mystery, the great mystery. So the circle of the mystery. And he said, sometimes you see the results of your practice. You, you practice. And so I see this, say, with clients, you know, you, they, they learn meditation, they learn about compassion, and they see the results right away. And other times, he said, you don't see any, any impact. And you, you, you wonder, am I doing anything? And he's saying, well, it doesn't matter if you see it. Because everything is interwoven it's not possible for you not to be affecting the whole, but because of that interwovenness and its vastness, you don't always see it. And that, but that doesn't matter. You know that things are interwoven. You have that sense. And it's supposed to be in, in particularly the, the, the tradition he's working in is, is Buddhist philosophical tradition. And they, they consider this one of the, the thoughts that turns the mind away from the insanity so we're captured by the pattern of insanity and we're pursuing, you know, happiness in a superficial way and, and material things and so on. And what turns you, what creates a rupture? And one of the thoughts is everything I do actually matters. There isn't a time when, when really I'm not affecting the world. And, and we almost hate that idea. And so it's because it, it means that there's this tremendous responsibility on our agency. And the wisdom traditions seem to agree that one of the problems for human beings is we don't know how to intend well. We don't know how to use our agency. So it's a really interesting thing. But what this makes me think of is, is your, your rupture then, because you are involved in the green business movement. And you, uh, these questions might have been at play in, in various ways. But what made you say, wait a second? I, I'm, I'm doing, I'm involved in this green bit, we're trying to green business, and now I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to change the project. I mean, did that, do I have that right? Did that happen at some point that it was sort of like, we're doing this thing, and I'm not sure if it's going to work? Or how did you make the shift from Silicon Valley's <laughs> green business movement to where you are? Well, you know, um, it's been a journey, <laughs> which is true, um, is true for everyone. And, and I think... You know, um, I was sort of, uh, well, you know, when do you ever, when do you really know when to start your own story? So, um, because this is all about philosophy and you're a real philosopher, you have a, a, a doctorate. I only have a bachelor's degree from 40 years ago, but in those days, you know, I, um, I mean, these, those were some of the best days of my life studying philosophy. Um, I originally was studying uh, economics and that first rupture point for me was um, there was, there was one Marxist in the faculty, a guy who I just adored. um, Dr. Uh, Marvin Lee, I think his name was. And he taught me so much, not just, not just about economics, but also how to look at the world and, and, and how to learn. And uh, I really appreciated that. But but most of the other economists in the department were, you know, neo, neoclassical, garden variety, um, growth is good kind of economists, and, and very much focused on econometrics and, and quantitative methods. And I finally just had enough. I was minoring in philosophy. So I just made the switch and um, was so happy I did. In fact, 
you're you say you're in well you're near Santa Cruz. I I for a while kind of regretted not have not have uh, not have realizing that sooner and applying to the the uh, the program at Santa Cruz, which I thought was really brilliant at the time. In any case, um, at the time I was I was a bit of an activist and uh, part of a little group called Students for Peace. Um, and uh, we were associated with the San Jose Peace Center. And we one of the things that we tried to do is to get a peace studies program at San Jose State. And at the time, there was something like this at Stanford. And it was coming through the, the International Relations uh, School or department or, or whatever. And um, the head of this school was Condoleezza Rice. So my job in this project, one of my jobs was to go meet her and talk with her about, you know, what they did. And, and she really tried to talk me out of it. <laughs> um, and so we, you know, we did it anyway. I, I'm not sure we succeeded in, in getting a, a program. I think we got a course uh, or something. It was a long time ago. But in those days, I considered myself an activist. I never, ever would have considered um getting a, a business-oriented degree or a business degree at all. I mean, I, I figured I'd lay in the beach and write poetry or or go get a doctorate. But <laughs> but then life happened um, and uh, got married. And, and my wife at the time, we were both into food, and we thought, well, let's open a restaurant. Well, how do we get the money? I know. I'll go get an MBA. I'll make boatloads of money. And then we'll come back and open the restaurant. And things did not work out that way. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I mean, I could, I could talk on and on, but you know, the next big rupture, um, you know, I was, uh, I got a degree. I, I helped my brother start a little company in Silicon Valley and then I started one and, and things were going great until the dot-com bubble and things be, began to get cynical. And then the battle <clears throat> in Seattle happened in 1999 and that kind of woke me up again and said, look, I, I have to do something that is aligned with my values um, my daughter was born in 2000, Bush was appointed president, 9-11, all these things just really kind of pushed me. So I closed my company down and, and started trying to go green. I'll take a pause. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. One of the things I, oh, it's beautiful. This is a beautiful story. I, I, for anybody out there, and it's probably not my, in my audience, but for those of you who have heard about all the Marxist takeover of the university, I think it's so interesting to hear that everybody was neoliberal. I mean, this is a good example. There is this myth. I'm sure you've heard it uh, on Fox News or whatever. Not that you watch it. I'm just saying that you can't escape Fox News. It's, it's there screaming these things. And people have this view that the university is just filled with Marxists, which is, in fact, not true. The analysis shows that the Red Scare scared all, all those people away. And even philosophy departments are, are really not so uh, open to the critique of capitalism in a way that would be very helpful and, and not always engaged with at all. So there's one Marxist who is trying to teach you how to, how to think about the world. And it's, it's, that's interesting. That's such a powerful thing. And I like, I, I certainly noticed the, the detail of Bush was appointed president um, and, and how that, that, that can, the birth of a child can really change people because the idea of, uh, in the platonic vein, is that the path to wisdom is love. Love is the very path. And so if we're saying I love you at age 15, the same as when we say it at age 35, something has gone wrong. You, you haven't grown. And sometimes it takes a, a being who comes into our life, and it's just, certainly when we meet our life partner, there's a big shift in us. But a child for so many people is, is even a, a, a bigger wake-up. 
you know, because it just there's a different relationship and it's it, 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 it's expansive. We sense the expansiveness of love in a different way. So that's a beautiful story already. I like it. And, uh, and uh, it, it may, people might want to, if you don't remember the Seattle thing, you might be younger, you might want to look it up. But uh, yeah, that's a great story so far. So please continue. I, I like, so you decided to go green. Yeah, and so um, I, I worked in a couple little uh, startups and learned a lot about everything sustainability. Um, uh, worked in a little startup that was making uh, compostable uh, plastics. Um, worked in a little online retail company. Um, I was hired by a hardware company that had been founded by gold miners in 1849. Ah, and um, those were the people who actually made money. <laughs> the gold miners all went broke. But if yeah. you sold tools or you sold jeans, <laughs> well, the interesting thing is they made money hand over fist until until globalization really started kicking off. Because uh-huh. then the the big box uh, retail formats, and this was really a good education for me, a fantastic education for. Um, the the local effects of of the global economy, mm-hmm. and so uh, I, I was working for a company called California Hardware, and we developed a, a green division, essentially, and and tried to help these retailers go green. And this was this was you know kind of my experience of the the green business moment that was that that first decade of the of this century, and. And, you know, there was a time when there were lots of uh, hardware and home improvement related lumber yards and building materials shops in, in every town that would have been owned by local people or maybe, you know, maybe some business titan who owned four or five or six stores in a region. But, you know, um, it was the advent of the big box store that came in and virtually wiped out that whole industry, sort of eviscerating the that kind of middle class in these in these uh, towns and and small cities around the state, uh, and the stories that I heard were were kind of all the same story. They they fell into a similar pattern about how these shops came in, eviscerated the town, but they survived because they really focused on building community and building relationships. And it was a story I heard over and over again. And uh, you know, there's there's more to it, of course, but. Um, that all went away with the next big collapse, which, um, you know, was what, 2008. And because this business was really dependent on very thin margins and, and the price of diesel fuel, mm-hmm. it, it went bust with the, the bust of, um, well, not, not just diesel fuel, but, but also, um, the housing market, because it's the housing market that drives, you know, this kind of, uh, this kind of retail. Yeah. Anyway, that turned out to be a good movement to to move to England. My partner's English. Her dad was in his late nineties, and we decided <clears> it was time to come over here and, and take care of him. So we did. That's what that's what brought me here. Wow. Okay. That was twelve years ago. Wow. It's interesting that sometimes people don't think of how a, a you think. Okay, this this business is here. Isn't it local? Because we don't perceive the fact that, that that the system is a money system, unfortunately, right now, and money is being siphoned out to some somebody else far away, 
And it's it's um, interesting how we don't understand how big of a disruption that is, that you have a Starbucks rather than a person who is starting their own little coffee shop, because something has to be funneled over to the corporation. Well, that's exactly right. That's that's how it works. It's the same pattern, uh, part of the same pattern that that is colonialism and imperialism and, you know, the peripheries feeding the core, et cetera, et cetera. And so... Um, uh, that's that's one of the the issues that we have with the kind of economic system that we have that is impoverishing our, our towns and, and especially our small, medium-sized cities in the U.S., in the U.K., in Europe. And so part of what we do try to do in the course is illuminate that and some of the, the theories behind how it works, why it works, and what are the alternatives. Mm-hmm. And so when when you when we think about these larger so somebody might say well but isn't it great how Walmart is so big or Home Depot they're so big now if Walmart they sell all this organic stuff isn't that isn't that good so this is another misperception but can you explain to us well, well if if why why can't we just green up uh Home Depot and Walmart why won't that work well, that's that's a great question, and um, that has been tried. So, um, you know, back around the time of of Al Gore's movie Inconvenient Truth, um, there was uh, there there was a guy. I, I don't know whether I should say his name. I don't want to call anybody out, but he was the he was the president of the Sierra Club. Uh-huh. And I think I know who you he, mean. That's all right. He yeah. said things publicly. <laughs> okay, so Adam Adam Werbach, Adam Werbach, youngest president of Sierra Club, and and what he saw was, look, we're we're not going to make the changes we need if we don't get business on board, and business can be a force for good. Okay, fair enough. So he he went to work for Walmart, and. Um, that effectively was the beginning of the corporate sustainability industry. So what Walmart uh, did was they said, okay, well, we're going to start going green. So this is also the beginning of, of greenwashing. And, um, you know, they, they did some good things. Um, I think the thing they started out with was training their employees, <clears throat> like by the big gulp and maybe walk to work sometimes. Um, very, very modest kind of proposals. And they started bringing some, some organic stuff in, but, um, you know, in those days, I think there was there was even some controversy when they started working with, I want to say, Organic Valley. I don't remember the brand, but, um, you know, as as a big retailer, you have uh, monopsony power and some some monopoly power where you can crowd out others. And so the the just the behemoth that is their business model um distorted uh, the market for milk, aggregated uh, supplies to to be distributed in their retail uh, establishments, and hurt a lot of local businesses. And so I think I think um, that was one of the big effects. Maybe maybe you're aware of some more. But you know, they, they went on to have have more kind of deleterious influences in in what had been a, a movement toward more green production and consumption which was probably never going to work anyway. But, you know, they, they uh, 
said that they would work with suppliers to green to green up the suppliers. And then they decided to create an institute that would define what green products were. So in those days, there were already some certifications around, around some products, and this was helping to identify green products in the market uh, with some success. But, but that kind of put the kibosh on that sort of momentum because once somebody that big comes in and says, well, we're going to define the, you know, what the standards are and we're, you know, we're going to fund this institute and, and so on and so on. Well, it just it just um, uh, kind of dampens the enthusiasm of any other potential players. And so what eventually happened is nothing. And I think if you go to Walmart's website now, you'll find that they're not really doing much of what they were doing before, you know, if anything. And so the problem with Walmart and really the problem with a lot of uh, a lot of the the um, the businesses that are you know, that we would recognize the brand, the corporate brands that we would recognize, especially is that their business models are inherently unsustainable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is, this is a number one problem. This is what led me to just (laughs) try to do something different. Um, But the enthusiasm has not waned. So uh, in those days, there was a lot of enthusiasm for, well, we vote with our dollars and we can make a lot of change in a very Adam Smithian kind of, you know, invisible hand sort of uh, uh, way. Um, <laughs> they'll buy greener things that'll send a market to producers and, you know, mm-hmm. they will, it will respond with greener products. Um, and that the, the certifications would help to identify that. And so um, there was a lot of enthusiasm for that. And eventually a lot of enthusiasm for a certification of companies. So if we only knew who the good, the good companies were, we would we would patronize them. We would buy products and services from them, and this would help to accelerate this shift. And now we have uh, the B Corps, um, which are ostensibly you know trying to do that, just as problematic in many ways as as what was going on before. Mm-hmm. Anyway, bit of got on my soapbox there a little bit. No, I, I think I, this is these are really important things to think about because for for one thing. It's interesting because it does touch on um, something in in Schumacher that he opens his book with the uh, de- declaration by the system that we're embedded in that it has solved the problem of production. And this is where he begins. We've solved the problem of production. And it's interesting to think about the ways in which uh, Smith was trying to solve the problem of scarcity. That's what the, I, I think is what he's trying to get at is that all resources are scarce, but if we divide labor up, then we won't have scarcity of resources. And that's a great subterfuge of the capitalist system is that it actually creates scarcity. It just creates it in places you don't see it right away. And it seems that it solves the problem of production. And what you were, I was hearing as you were talking about this is, hey, we'll just green up production. And Schumacher is saying, yes, but th- that's the problem. What you're calling production is actually the redu- reduction of capital. It is, you're treating it like it's income, but you're actually reducing capital on multiple fronts. And he talks about three kinds of re- reduced capital. One is fossil fuels, that that capital just goes away. The other one is... Uh, what he calls the the boundaries of ignorance, which is to say, as Gregory Bateson puts it, that nature will always absor- absorb a certain amount of human ignorance for us. 
because we were talking about when we first started talking that everything we do has consequences. Everything has effects in the system. Now, some of the, when we're ignorant, those effects are deleterious and nature, it's kind enough to absorb some of them. So if you pollute your local river a little, little bit, okay, maybe somebody gets a little sick and you realize you've done something wrong and you can change. Okay, you pollute all the rivers and the oceans, you have a whole different issue. And so he's saying that we've, we've spent that capital out now. We're getting to the point where you can't. It used to be here on Turtle Island, it wasn't that long ago. You could, if you saw water, you could drink it. <laughs> you know, if there was a river or a lake. And the Dalai Lama talked about when he came to America, he said, I didn't realize that something could look like water, but you, you shouldn't drink it. It could be harmful because at Tibet, when he left Tibet, it was still possible to drink what you saw. And then the third one is our human substance that we've, we've spent down the human substance. And so that's why, that's one of the reasons what your, your analysis was suggesting is that's one of the reasons why you can't think that you will solve the problem that way because you've just completely misunderstood what you're doing and what production is. You can't green production. You're, that's just pretending that you can spend capital by, by relabeling. Yeah, so how this shows up these days is uh, in arguments for green growth. And uh, I don't know if, if you or your listeners will be aware, but gosh, it was back in May, there was the Beyond Growth Conference in Brussels. And some people, at least one person that, that I saw on LinkedIn or something, <laughs> called it the, the, um, the Woodstock for degrowth. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure it was quite that, but... Um, I don't know how how well known degrowth is in the states, but it's you know it's uh, it's it's been an academic and political uh, sort of uh, stream of of research and discourse uh, in Europe for probably well these past twenty years more or less, and beginning to get traction. Um, but you you really saw the. Um, It wasn't quite a victory lap for the argument of, of the argument against degrowth, but pretty close. And so, um, uh, Jason Hickel and, and Yorios uh, Kalis, a, a couple of degrowth scholars um, who are working at uh, the, um, I think it's called the Universidad Autónoma de Barcelona, or something along those lines. Um, so they've been they've been working there, and they've been collaborators for a while, and they wrote. Uh, a paper, I think back in 2019, called is, is Green Growth Possible or something like that, that really just eviscerated the argument. It really comes down to these two problems of production. One is the material throughput of the economy, uh, and the other is the, the rise in emissions. And they're so tightly coupled to growth um, that, um, you know, it, it's really hard to see a way for us to absolutely decouple in any in any you know kind of short run scenario that that we would need to do and so hence the logic of of degrowing or stopping our growth i could say loads more about it but we'll see where this goes there's a general philosophical issue here that i'll just throw out and then we can move from from what we were discussing anywhere you'd like or that sometimes i refer to the way we're trying to solve the problem as solar powered samsara it, so the samsara is the Buddhist term that indicates uh, ignorance by, by means of which we actively misknow the world. It's not simple ignorance. See, the ignorance, there's one level of ignorance that I don't know what's on the other side of the wall that's behind you. 
Okay, well, that, I just don't know that. There's a whole different thing if I'm imagining, like actively seeing a forest behind you that doesn't exist. I'm actively creating a reality that's not there. And that's how we're actively misknowing the world. We don't really, um, we're stuck in it. And then if you think you'll just unplug it from fossil fuels, that the energy driving that kind of social, cultural scale samsara, and then you'll plug it into the sun, that's diluted because it's the same ignorance. You haven't shifted that way of understanding what you are, what the world is, and what our relationships are with all the rest of the community of life. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, so, we're, I think, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, please. I was just going to say, you know, as as human primates, we're very good at self delusion. Yeah. So I think um, you know it's it's kind of uh, it's always been the case. I mean, some people hope for an evolution of consciousness, and I mean, human beings have changed over time. And it is quite possible that this is our moment to really, to really make a leap and um, to, to, I suppose, try to uh, try to be in the world with an authentic understanding of, of what that means. Um, there are so many forces playing against that, you know, from from our own bodily cravings to uh, propaganda, social media, and you know, all kinds of other stuff. I think this is, you know, as, as uh, a student of philosophy in my, in my younger days at school, I was very much, you know, in the existentialist camp and, and the Buddhist camp as well. Um, and really just saying, you know, we, we are responsible for who we are as individuals and, and for how we, how we, how we, uh, uh, maybe not how we come into the world, but certainly how we leave it. And um, and what what creates all of our problems is the anxiety of knowing that we are radically free, and I've I've kind of I've kind of reeled myself in a little bit uh, from that stance because I think um, that asks a lot of us. It asks a lot of people to be able to make that effort. I mean, the heroes of philosophy, at least the ones in you know in my little pantheon, are those that that really struggled, like, you know, going all, all the way back to Socrates, you know, know thyself. And and all those other philosophers who, who saw the craziness of the world around them and um, found a way to sort of authentically question themselves and their own beliefs to come to a place that that um, was their best authentic effort to to see the world as it is. Not everybody can do that. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that's it's an interesting question, the degree to which we can, because there too, it's a matter of an ecology of mind. So if, if we are trying to chase the fruit, we might have a problem. But if we're working the soil, the fruit will happen by itself. And I think that's part of the Platonic message. Socrates was so interested in education, which is where you find yourself, because he's saying that's how you create the fruit that you need for the society to be self-nourished and to continue. And there's an implicit ecological message in Plato. He certainly is not a, a, any kind of um, exceptional ecological thinker, but he definitely puts forward the idea that human ignorance is mirrored by ecological degradation. 
And he talks about how, you know, the, the, the world where Athens was, was richer when people were wiser, and that he recognized that it had been degraded and that that went together with human ignorance. So, and he saw it in a way that Bateson would actually approve of, to say that there are sacred powers that w- respond to human ignorance, and that when we are cultivating wisdom, love, and beauty, that those powers make the world flourish together with that. So he doesn't. He can't explain it. He doesn't have a mechanism, so to speak. But he he sees this correlation. So the the view there was that you could have a culture that was more rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. And of course, that would mean that humans are fallible. There's still ignorance. Of course, of course, of course. But with that support, in in education theory, for instance, Vygotsky has that idea of the scaffolding. Right, that the student, Vygotsky noticed that you can't just say what level the student's at. The student's level will vary depending on where, where you're putting them and who they're in relationship with. A good teacher sort of brings the student, scaffolds the student up to a level that they're not quite at developmentally, but they're supported to be at that level. So we could have something like that as well. Well, yeah, I agree. I think. Um, uh, I'm not super familiar with, with Bateson's work. You know, he taught at Schumacher. Um, and, and there are some folks there who, who knew him and, and, uh, you know, I've heard, I've heard him in video and, and lectures and essays and stuff. And, and my understanding is that there's a, there's a sort of ecology of psychological experience, but also a psychology of social and cultural experience. And there's, there's also the ecology of, of course, being part of the web of life. I think all of these, all of these contexts matter. And I think you're absolutely right. If we nurtured those ecologies to, in effect, produce the new human being or the human being that that we we sort of know we could be or need to be in this moment, I would, you know, I, I think this is this is part of this big project that many of us see ourselves in. It's a it's a multi generational, long term project um, to try to move us in in more of that direction. There's there's a woman here who's co-founder of uh, the transition movement, you know, Transition Towns, so- Sophie Banks. And one of the things that she's really been um, trying to highlight is the need for healthy human cultures. And so so very often, like in our course, we, we maybe will frame the question in terms of complexity. How can we create the conditions for this kind of culture to emerge? Or how can we create the conditions for, for people to, to be able to walk down that that path toward greater uh, self-awareness and and maybe enlightenment. I don't know. Yeah, but you know, I think I think that's I think that's maybe what Plato was trying to get at, but he he was too fascist, and so maybe well, what he should have talked about was the philosopher citizen. Yeah, I think you're right. He he seems to raise these questions about whether or not. I mean, I don't know that he really was particularly fascist. It's tricky. I know it's easy to write him off that way. um, So we don't have to go into into that. I'll just say that I I think he's less than people tend to think. But irrespective of that, there, there is this possibility for us to create, yes, to create better cultures. And maybe because then Nietzsche picks up this idea of the superhuman, 
that and he sees this as an evolutionary thing that we will evolve into these superhumans who are more kind of self-actualized and and have powers that that ordinary humans don't particularly have and we see that in indigenous cultures too the shaman has powers that that other people could have access to but but they are still a, a medial figure mediating these kind of mysteries that we can't control but in a more practical level um the things we're talking about apply for uh, probably in some of your teaching and also some of your work that I'd like to get to. So I'd like to talk about, talk about for instance, your incubator, uh, incubator project. But I'd first like to talk just a little bit about what regenerative economics is and how it addresses some of these deeper questions that we've asked. It doesn't have to be the, the seemingly you know, uh, philosophical questions. There's no when you said that I'm the philosopher, the thing is that you, you can't help being one. I mean, I, my view of philosophy is that if whatever you do, you have to have a way of doing it. And philosophy is just how we do things. And we, do, we try to, we don't do, nobody goes around saying, let's do things in the most ignorant way possible, or I'm going to do the way, do things the way that I know is not right. We, we base it on what we think is right. So there's knowledge, there's a sense of beauty, there's a sense of what, how I should do this. And so how does regenerative economics address some of the questions that you have raised and pointed out in our discussion. Well, the conversation we were just having would be the kind of conversation we could probably have in our course. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, you kind of left it in, in an interesting place. Um, sometimes in our course, you know, we, we well we we do talk quite a lot about agency people come into the course they're be, they're going to become a regenerative economist and so in trying to answer the question what is regenerative economics somewhere along the way you have to kind of answer the question of what what is a regenerative economist and i think the way that that we try to frame it is that you know um the role includes not only learning about how the system works maybe as a complex adaptive system in the context of of uh, ecological and social reality um, understanding the history why have things developed in the way that they have why are things the way they are now what could be done differently what's our what's what are the leverage points maybe or what are the opportunities to make change and if we're thinking in terms of a system we're hopefully thinking in terms of the kinds of things that could have knock-on effects. Um, but also, you know, where's our own agency? And, and how do we go about this practice of doing things? I think right off the, at the beginning, you know, we talked about the conversation and, and how really that's such a fundamental building block for knowing how to, um, how to connect with another person, really. Yeah. And in order to do you have to you have to know yourself a bit. You have to go through some kind of process yourself to really be able to connect with people in ways that that would um, lead us to you know to that kind of culture we were talking about a minute ago, or the kind of economic system um, that would uh, that would be consistent with that sort of culture. So this re- this relates to what you were talking about with being the shaman. Um, so the shaman has sort of an esoteric insight into some aspect of reality, a very, still a very human, uh, natural reality. Um, uh, and, 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 and the same with Nietzsche's concept of the artist. So the, the artist is that Ubermensch, that, that the artist is that shaman 
who can gain some insights and and will practice that for its own sake, but from that from that practice also creates uh, sort of um, you know uh, a bounty of of goodness in in various ways. And so, in a way, you know, um, the role of the of the regenerative uh, economist is to is to help lead us toward that kind of culture, to be able to have conversations, uh, the right kinds of conversations with people. But more than that, to be able to build, uh, to build new models um, and, uh, you know, create the, the new kinds of, of economic relationships that can get us there. So flipping this around, then, what is regenerative um, economics? I try to avoid that question most of the time. <laughs> Um, cause for me, it's an inquiry and I know that there's, it was, uh, the, that term was coined by somebody called John Fullerton of the Capital Institute. He's, I think he's in, I don't know where he is. I want to say Boston. I'm not quite sure, but he's, he's out that way somewhere. Um, and he's come up with, you know, some principles and, and, and things like that. I think, I think it's a bigger inquiry. And and very often I'll frame it in terms, at least in terms of our course. Um, so because our course is called regenerative economics, we sort of have to have a take on it. But actually, our course is how we answer that question: What is regenerative economics? And so, you know, for me, very often I, I will frame the answer in terms of: Well, it's the kind of economics we need now. And so it has to affirm life. It has to be just and inclusive, has to be ecologically wise, has to be about social thriving and conviviality. And, and it has to be, it has to be resilient for obvious reasons. So I take a very pragmatic view um, in terms of how we might answer those particular um, prescriptions. Um, but generally, you know, it's the, it's the kind of economics that would reduce our consumption, that would focus on, on creating more opportunities for people to have their needs met uh, outside of the market in ways that, that increase well-being, that also uh, are at least benign, but are, are hopefully regenerating all the life around us. So these are very general terms. This is a very philosophical kind of, you know, my, my predecessor in this job really kind of talked about this inquiry is being about moral philosophy. Um, but it's a little bit more than that because it has to be, it has to be super practical. And this is one of the things I really love about EF Schumacher. Um, my favorite quote is uh, an ounce of practice is worth about a ton of theory. Mm. And I think this comports with a lot of the lessons that come out of complexity too. You know, you sort you sort of have to engage with the system to learn about it. You can't just sit back and say, well, I'm going to design the, you know, the uh, the kind of economy we need now without engaging with the world. That's ridiculous. Indeed. And I know there are lots of books out there on, you know, all the bestseller lists that are trying to do that. But you have to engage with people. And if, and if we have to dramatically reduce our consumption, I think there's no getting around the fact that the only way we can do that in any sort of satisfying way is if we're also increasing uh, our our uh, community relationships, or at least maybe increasing isn't the right word, but, but, you know, investing them in them in ways that, 
that are are satisfying that 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 create fulfillment that meet our needs in ways that allow us to say well i don't need that jaguar or i don't need to to stream that movie from netflix and so this is where the fun is is figuring out those kinds of approaches that could that could fit into that sort of paradigm and the nice thing is there are tons there are so many around the world it's a fun course <laughs> yeah no, and it's deeply philosophical. Obviously, I love I love the, the the shift that people are making from cogito ergo sum to convivo ergo sum. Yeah, the the the, the and this discovery that our interwovenness is our, our our great wealth. So the true wealth of nations is our interwovenness, but we don't see that. And the Harvard study, we, we, there are a couple podcast episodes of if if you are listening and haven't uh, checked them out, but they, they look at this unprecedented study uh, looking at three different Harvard classes. Have you heard of this, the big Harvard study? It started in the, it's, go ahead. Remind me, I looked at it, but I, I don't remember. Yeah, so it started in the, with the, in, in 1938, and they took three Harvard classes, and they've been following them for 80, 80 85 years now. And so they um, it later included some uh, people from poor neighborhoods in Boston, and they started to include the, this would have been all men. So they included their wives and their children, which then brought, brought women into into the mix. But what they discovered, it, just remarkable findings. And essentially that what Adam Smith acknowledged and admitted, that the capitalist process doesn't make you happy, and it can't. But our relationships and our interwovenness in general, it's a real demonstration of the ecology of mind, that if you, you take two people, two guys, who both went to Harvard, okay, and they've got roughly the same IQ, and they found out that IQ is, is not very significant, okay, maybe um, if it's below 110, you could have some ch extra challenges, but after 110, 115, it's, you know, that's not going to make a, a difference. But you take two guys, and one of them is making $100,000 a year more than the other. You say, why is that? Well, one fellow is going to say, well, I'm a little bit smarter, I'm a little more creative, I'm a little more, what? no, no, no. But what they found in the study is that it's the, it was the warmth of childhood relationships, in particular with their mothers, but also the, the, the relationship with their father had an effect. The mother was, if you could only pick one, having a warm relationship with your mother was a huge effect, not only on income, but happiness. Because you could also have two fellows, one's making twice the money of the other, why is this guy happier? warm relationships with his mother, which then carried to later uh, on in their life. And um, so anyway, that interwovenness is really important. And it's, it's so interesting how philosophical your program is, that you've recognized that, that we, what we need to do is not know what regenerative economics is, and that we ourselves are somehow put into question by the confusion that's around us. And that only by beginning to really understand ourselves and get in touch with ourselves could we find the way forward. What is the way forward that will first recognize you don't know? That's a very Socratic gesture, which is the aporia, the place where I say, I just don't know. And most people then want to leave and say, Socrates, I'm busy, I have other things to do. And he said, <laughs> if you just stay with that not knowing, then you may discover what you, what you didn't, weren't capable of knowing because you had to put yourself into question first. You really, and that's an uncomfortable space that we're in as a culture, right? Because we don't know what we would be without Netflix and without all the things that it seems to provide us. And it's scary. So there's even a need for compassion for ourselves that we're kind of scared. I don't know what I'm going to do without my SUV and Netflix and my Keurig coffee machine. Yeah, empathy. We, we talk a lot about empathy as well in the course. 
Um, uh, and yeah, it's amazing. And it's, it's a lesson that um, I have to relearn over and over again, but, you know, to be able to say, I don't know, actually kind of reveals a lot. It reveals a lot more than the sort of the striving and the, you know, all of the ego attachment that comes along with, you know, trying to be the smartest guy in the room or, or whatever. Um, okay. So just a little bit of a tangent. Do you know this project called a giant leap? I'm not sure. So this was maybe back in the nineties. These two guys went around the world. One of them, I think lives around Devon somewhere. Huh. Uh, I can't remember his name um, at the moment. So a giant leap. So they, they run around the world and they had, you know, on their laptops, uh, gear that enabled them to record music and shoot video and stuff like that. And they, they talked to all kinds of amazing people and recorded all kinds of video and, and had people collaborating on musical pieces, you know, asynchronously from different places around the world. And it was just amazing. Michael Stipe um, was, was one of the artists and uh, well, loads more, but the reason I thought about it is because there's, they talked to, they talked to uh, religious leaders and, and other, other sort of thought leaders along the way. And this one guy, I think he was probably, he was probably a, a Jain monk or, or something like that. And he said something like, um, uh, God does not speak when you are speaking. He only speaks when you are not speaking. You, you know, you can't hear God when you are speaking, something like that. And that, that always stuck with me. It's such a beautiful way of, of, of I think, highlighting the importance of, of a quietness of mind and just just kind of like to to be and yeah anyway i'm not eloquent like like he was but no that's uh, beautiful so important so important you see it throughout the wisdom traditions in fact one of the things when you quoted schumacher the first thing that came to mind was hakuin the great zen master who invented the profound spiritual case of common law what is the sound of one hand clapping and hakuin said that one moment of meditation in the midst of activity is worth a million years of meditation on the cushion. Now, he did not say, forget the cushion. What he was, in fact, saying is you need the cushion to, to even get that one moment. But that's the idea that you are taking that. And then Rumi, uh, when you were just talking about this last quote, Rumi has a couple poems. One with that if God picks up a lute and it's, it's stuffed with something, he won't play it. Or that we're like a reed plucked from a reed bed, but if we're filled with mud, God won't play it. And so uh, Nusrat Fadali Khan, as a wonderful, incredible singer, said, we do not sing, we are made to sing. With that beautiful double entendre, we were built to have the music of life come through us, but we have to let the music of life come through us. We have to be made to sing by something that comes through. And you're so right, there too is this shift between saying, you know, if you say, what is regenerative economics, then you have to say, well, what is the regenerative economist? That is to say, we can't know the world except on the basis of what we are. The knower and the known are not two things. And if we try to know the way forward without knowing what we are, we've limited what we could know as a possibility, which is such an important question right now, because I'm sure, as you've experienced, if you question the system we have, then, oh, it must be Stalin. If it's either this or Mao. It's not this thing of saying, no, we could come up with something different, but we'd have to shift a little bit how we're being with each other. 
And that's one of the things that I love so much about your incubator project. Would you, uh, first of all, what is an incubator? And then, you know, how did you try to do it? And then what did it become? Which I think is a beautiful illustration of, of some of these finding our way forward together suggestions. Do you mean uh, the incubator project? Do you mean the... Um, the one day one? Oh, that one. Oh, okay. That okay. One, yeah, I like that one. You can talk about anything, but uh, I, I do well, really love that. I, I do like that one, too. I do like that one, too. So, um, you know, uh, when I got here, uh, my head was full of permaculture. I just had a course with uh, with Starhawk. Okay, and, yeah. And... Um, you know, I was moving to a new country and a new town and I was going to, I was going to observe and interact you know, slowly and lightly. And so eventually um, there was the idea to start up uh, a group associated with Transition Town Totnes. That would, that would be all about the local economy. So of course I'm going to be part of that. I, I show up on the first meeting and somebody says, well, uh, we should start an incubator. Well, of, of course. So I was in an incubator in Silicon Valley. I know all about that. And we and tell fact, us what that is for the, because there's probably a lot of people who. Well, probably people are familiar with the term, um, you know, from uh, neonatal care or, you know, from baby chicks. It's a warm, nurturing environment from which life can, can emerge and take hold and thrive. And that's what it is but it's for businesses. So a business incubator is that nice nurturing environment. Maybe it's no or low rent in a place where you're surrounded by peers and interesting innovators. There are all kinds of uh, people in the networks that are connected with it, maybe a funder or, you know, anyone. So, so this is the idea and it's a really great way to, you know, um, from the perspective of economic, uh, development or redevelopment. It's a strategy that many that has been used in many cities since the, the early 80s. I think it first emerged in, in Boston or somewhere like that. Um, I was in one in San Jose. It was the it was the San Jose Software Business Cluster. And this was 94, 95, right when the internet was becoming a thing for, uh, you know, for people outside of government and universities. Super exciting time. And really, I learned a lot and um, launched a business there, and it was great. So I recognize that as a as a, a way in which, if we wanted to shift the economy from this to that, well, we have to create the conditions for those kinds of entrepreneurs and for those kinds of things to start up. You can't expect Walmart to make that switch. So we have to start up alternatives. So I was all for this incubator idea. And so, you know, 20 people showed up for this first meeting. 10 people for the second one, four for the third. And eventually it was, it was just, you know, kind of me and Francis looking around saying, well, um, you know, where are the opportunities to create an incubator? We developed a couple of business plans. We went this direction. We were blocked. We went that direction, failed. And so uh, I will take some, I'll take some credit here. I usually say we, but um, I drew on my, my, Silicon Valley experience. And I, I know that there are many events where, where entrepreneurs can pitch to investors or other folks. And this is just normal practice uh, in a place like that. And so I had this idea, well, let's make the problem the solution. One of my favorite permaculture principles. And so, so that was the origin of this idea that we, that we developed into the local entrepreneur forum and community of dragons 
And so we've run it in different ways. Uh, we've run it 11 times in this town. We're about ready to do the 12th time in November. It's happened in a couple of other places. I just went um, went to Luxembourg and helped them run one in Luxembourg. And along the way, became friends with the economics minister of Luxembourg. And then I went to the Global Eco Village Gathering and, and ran it for them too. And so uh, the... The, the idea behind the, the bigger event is that you, you include some open space, which is a, it's, a, it's a format for doing a conference that's very participatory and emergent, um, which is important for, for helping people to kind of learn what they need to learn and meet who they need to meet. If you're a Californian, super easy to thrust your hand out in front of somebody and say, hey, I'm Jay, nice to meet you. This is what I'm doing. What are you doing? You can't do that in England. Um, so, so you really have to warm up people and give them, you know, uh, a low risk way to kind of put themselves out there. And this, that's what this format does. Then we had a shared meal, a couple speakers, and then we had four or five entrepreneurs pitch. And, and the first year we had them pitch to three investors that we put up on stage. We called them dragons because in this country, there's a, a reality show called the dragon's den. And um, I think in the States, they call it the shark, the shark tank. Okay. Um, I've heard of that. I've heard of that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was our thinking with calling it that we had three very friendly dragons and, and our brief to them was, look, we're going to get these sort of green and social uh, enterprises to pitch and, and just help them in some way. You don't have to invest money and help them in some way. Use your connections, your, your expertise. If you have money, fine, but that's not an expectation. And one of the guys, uh, Pete Yeo, who uh, I love dear, dearly, he's the alchemist of North Devon, I call him. He, he, when he introduced himself, he told a story about how in his town in North Devon, um, there was this lovely cafe that was very loved by the community, but the couple who ran it were breaking up. And it was left with this, uh, for the single mother now to run. She couldn't handle it. She was going to close it down. And the community rallied around her. And they said... Hey, I'll do a shift washing dishes. I'll pick your kids up from school. I'll go do the shopping. I'll do this. I'll do that. And they save the cafe. And I was standing in the back of the room just going, oh, my God, Pete, this is how we're doing it from now on. So this became the, the origin of the community of dragons. And now um, what we've been doing ever since is we have people pitch to the audience and we brief the audience and just say, look, you're you're here to participate. Um, you don't have to be a passive consumer. You can actually have a voice and everything you do, every gift you have can be an investment in the kind of, in, in effect, the better world that you want. So we've been doing it like that. People will raise their hand and say, well, I'll, I'll loan you a thousand pounds. Come and talk to me later. And because I know you friendly and patient capital. So you pay me back whenever or you know, whatever the deal is, or come and talk to me later. Or I'll give you 100 pounds or I'll give you 10 pounds if somebody else gives you 10 pounds. And then, boom, like a forest of hands goes up around the room. Or um, I'll help you with your business plan or I'll introduce you to somebody that uh, I know can help you. Or um, I'll develop your marketing plan or I'll build you a website or I'll do your books or um, I'll watch your kids while you go to a meeting or I'll give you a massage or I'll give you a hug or I'll bake you a cake. So all of these things we count and it's really been amazing every year somebody says wow there was a lot of love in the room 
And so in this town, we've supported about 48 projects now, raised a bunch of money, um, and have had, uh, in our little town, there are about 9,000 people live here. We've had 300 and something odd people kind of play this role of investor. So for me, that indicates some culture change toward, toward the kind of, I mean, it's an event. It only really works as culture change if you do it every year, it becomes part of that ecosystem. But I think um, it's one of the ways that we can get toward that more convivial more self-reliant uh, sort of culture that can carry the transition to wherever it needs to go. And so, um, you know, we it's happening in other places. I've, I'm part of an international network. I just mentioned Luxembourg. It's happened in Rio de Janeiro. It's happened in Japan. Uh, it could happen in many more places, of course. But It could happen in Santa Cruz. You know? It could. <laughs> I mean, it's a brilliant illustration that we that our true wealth is our interwovenness. And, and that why should we, when we make these dualities, the part of the product, you have these contradictions in capital. Certainly one of them is, is a laborer and the capitalist. And so, but if I'm an investor, and if, if we are creating the community together, then we, we can start to erase those contradictions. It's such a beautiful idea. And it's really so amazing that it, it is simple as, of course, some projects really need money, but then some people can give it or loan it. But then some projects really just need to know that people are out there wishing them well and saying, look, yeah, if I can run an errand for you, or if I can help you do website design, things that you really could use and, and would be so valuable. It's, it's just an excellent illustration of this creating a, an ecology that produces new fruit then we don't know where it's going to go because we're doing it together. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you, you see that too. Um, it's, it's kind of like, it's one of those really simple ideas and it's something that, um, that anybody could do. It's like the paperclip of great ideas. <laughs> so simple. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Well, yeah. And it's not like I thought about it. Or, like, it's not like I thought of it or invented it out of out of whole cloth. I mean, it was just, as you were you were saying before about the ecology of mind, it was it was a gathering. It was a gleaning, really, of things that were, that were already there. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Well, as we come to a close, well, I, there must be so many things that you are excited about. And I, I'm sure we could talk for hours and maybe we'll have you come back again. But what else would you like to share uh, final thoughts, uh, other project you're excited about? Well, um, yeah, the time really flew by. I really, I really love having um, this kind of a conversation. Um, so I, I would love to do it again. Um, I've just been come back from a, a little study trip. And uh, I was gone for about two and a half weeks. Um uh, my first stop was in in the Netherlands, where there's a, a Schumacher inspired center beginning to to develop, and there are links with the Schumacher Center in Massachusetts. There's a um, maybe you already know there's a Schumacher Center for New Economics in Berkshire, Massachusetts, and um, and there are links with us and, and and some other links. I'm I'm pretty excited about that. I was there for sort of the initial kind of dreaming. Uh, meeting in a place called Kleina Erda, Kleina Arda, which means small earth. It's it's a little permaculture-like center that was also founded about 50 years ago. Um, then from there, I went to Luxembourg. Uh, I already told you about, about my experience there, which was really fascinating. 
And then I went to Liège. There's a, a really interesting project in Liège um, that is called the Scientour uh, Alimentaire, which is a bit of a pun. Um, it's the it's the Earth Food Belt around the city, hmm. and it's also uh, some of the origins of this project. Uh, some of the origins, I say, come from uh, a transition group that started there. Um, but it, it's it's been going for 10 years, and it's really a fantastic, super successful uh, project. And while there, I started working on my own book. I've decided to write a book. And so um, um, that was kind of exciting for me. One of the things I spent a lot of time thinking about was conviviality, because I think this is really a key uh, a key area for us to focus on. And in order, I think, to accelerate the, uh, the, the spread of this kind of thinking, but more importantly, the doing uh, of this kind of thing really requires some connectivity, but also requires uh, thinking about and then practicing the spreading of the know-how it's not so easy. You can't just publish a, a toolkit up on the internet and expect things to change. So the, the Reconomistas, this international community of practice I'm part of, we're, we're trialing this idea of twinning places. So, you know, in many international networks, you know, I'll be a part of it. You'll be a part of it. Someone else will be a part of it. You go, you learn stuff. But when you come back to your place, you may not be able to really spread what you've learned effectively to a group. So what we're wanting to do is, is to have more place to place connectivity so that the dozen people here working on stuff can meet up with a dozen people over here working on stuff. And um, at the moment it's, it's uh, us here in South Devon, people in Luxembourg, people in Bern in Switzerland and people in Rio de Janeiro. So they're a little a subset of this network that we're in. So I'm very excited about that. I, We've called it slow innovation. We've been sort of incubating it for a while and um, have really let it develop organically from the relationships that we have with everyone. So um, as they say here in in England, watch this space. Mm. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. It's interesting, this idea of slowing down, which is very Socratic. But also there was some research that came out quite recently showing that uh, contrary to expectation that you c could potentially have, that if you present comp complicated problems to uh, intelligent people, they will solve them more quickly than people who don't score. Now, it, this is with all the caveats that we don't understand intelligence, but okay, to the extent that we do measure and understand it, shouldn't the intelligent person solve it faster? turns out they, it, they're slower. Because it's part of our intelligence is recognizing the need to slow down, which is what Socrates was constantly asking people to do, throw out the clock. That that's part of what's the conquest, that Co Captain Clock is part of the revolt. We have to revolt against Captain Clock. But I, I also love that um, really understanding the need for that relationality, because that is true that we go, we have an experience. This is true in spiritual life, too. Somebody goes, they have a big spiritual experience, and they go back, and they, they can't talk to anybody. They feel, in fact, more disconnected. And how do we create these spaces of sanctuary and spaces of sanity that allow us to uh, really understand more deeply and, and to continue the practice? That's such a big part of it. And it also it brings up more that need for inner work that we don't always see. When, when Bohm was trying to promulgate the idea of philosophical dialogue as a way to maximize our intelligence and creativity, people got very excited 
But then he started to hear somebody came to him and said, well, there are these groups that are forming and they're not having very good results. And he said, people don't understand the need to work on yourself when you do when you do this. You think you can just gather together and if we have a conversation, sure, sometimes you sort of fall accidentally into the spirit of dialogue and wow, we had a big thing. But it, you need to know how to do it with, with less happenstance, less hit and miss. And that requires what the wisdom traditions offer us, how to train mm. the heart and the mind and have a synchronization and synchronicity of heart, mind, body, and world and cosmos. So that's all in there, it sounds like. And it's, uh, it's exciting. When uh, What's your projected uh, time frame for your book? It will be a slow book, potentially. Oh, but what do you think? Who yes. knows? That's good. All right. I think, <laughs> well, I think um, my, my idea at the moment is uh, I, I sometimes describe myself as a thinking practitioner. Okay. So I think it's going to be uh, some some essays that are, you know, maybe trying to be uh, profound, <laughs> maybe some things that are very practical uh, yeah. alongside. So yeah. uh, next year, coming to bookshops everywhere. Hopefully. <laughs> okay, that's Be good. That. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, there you go. The practical is so important. I, Epicurus said it well. Uh, vain is the word of the philosopher that heals no suffering. It really, we forget that it is meant to be intimate and practical, and that if it's not, you don't. You only think you understand. You don't really understand. So that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, Jay, thank you for joining us. It was really it's lovely to hear about what you're doing. I'd love to hear more, and so maybe we can have you back again. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yes, and thanks to all of you for joining us. If you have any questions, reflections, stories about anything that we touched on, please send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them. Recording stopped.